0: Hello and welcome back to the God's Story Podcast. I'm Brent Siddle and I'm joined once again by the Reverend Ian Reid of King's Grace Presbyterian Church, Palmerston North, New Zealand. Ian, welcome back to the show. Thanks Brent. We're back in Mark's Gospel, Ian, having started last week and we're looking at Mark chapter 1 today, verses 14 to 34. Now what a story this is.
1: Yeah, it's such a good, you know, kind of when you actually read it as a piece of literature, and I want to kind of recommend trying to sit down and read the whole thing through as a, you know, kind of as a book.
0: It's quite short to read. I mean, there the are actors who've performed the, the whole Gospel of Mark in one evening. It's mm. not—it's not a long piece.
1: No. Uh, and there's the—if um, you ever get to to see, there are some productions of it online. Mm. Mm. Uh, it's worth looking up because you just sit there and watch it. It's actually David Chiu, who's. Did oh, okay Poirot yeah he does a reading of it kind of a dramatic reading of it on YouTube which is amazing he not, not many people know that he's a Christian he's actually
0: yes he he uh, yes he is he used to go to All Souls Lang in Place yeah
1: mm. and he's on the um, is it the Bob Society mm. for the UK is on mm. their board, mm. uh, but he does a reading of it. I think it's at All Souls or somewhere, and it's, it's very, very good. It's worth listening to.
0: Yeah, he's absolutely brilliant as Poirot. I, mean, I just love him. I've got the whole Poirot set. I love it. What did we see last week in Mark chapter 1, verses 1 to 13? We saw the king is coming into
1: the into the world, and we see uh, that all of these kind of replays of things in the Old Testament, that they kind of come up again, but Jesus does them differently. He is the new Adam. He is the one who has come uh, to bring back God's people to the Father.
0: Yes. How is this the culmination of God's epic story of creation?
1: Well, what, what we have kind of all through the Old Testament, what we are waiting for is is the end of sin that God needs to return uh, and end sin, and all of the Old Testament is kind of—it looks like what's going on is God's different plans for how to end sin, but they all of them fail. You've got, you know, kind of prophets, you've got kings, you, you've got the nation of Israel, you've got the exile. All of these different things look like maybe this is the time that sin will end, but they all fail. And here we have, you no, know, God Himself is coming to end sin.
0: How does Mark show us that Jesus is the culmination of the story of the universe?
1: We have all of these little bits and pieces from Genesis being popped up already. Uh, You've got kind of the, like we we saw last week, the spirit over the waters. You've got the breaking in of of God as he opens the heavens and speaks into it. You've got all of these little bits and pieces that seem to be referring back to Genesis.
0: Mm. Yes, we saw that last time. So let's come on and look at verses 14 to 20. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately, there's immediately that word he uses all the time in Mark. Immediately, immediately, immediately. It's like Jesus, the action man, the king. Um, And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the sons of thunder. Here they are, the two boys. (laughs) And John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Now, what do we learn about John the Baptist here?
1: Well, he's arrested. So his job is done, basically. And he'll pop up again a little bit later later in the story, but not in a positive way, well, n- not in terms of his character, in terms of what happens to him. No,
0: he loses his head, not in a, a, a symbolic way, but literally, L- literally, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah. Why does Jesus say what he does here, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand?
1: Well, in the Old Testament, you have there are some quotes, and a couple of those appear right at the beginning of Mark, that the messenger, the, the great prophet, has come and prepared the way. Elijah has come and prepared the way, which is from Malachi, uh, and... He has done his job, so now is the time for God himself to reveal himself.
0: Yes, and and so we we asked this question last time and started talking about this idea of the kingdom of God. Jesus announces the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God that Jesus is talking about here? It's
1: God's restoration of all relationships. Uh, so it's God's reign over all things, over all of the universe, and in doing that, what does he do? He re- He reveals who he is, but he also restores all relationships back to the order that they should be in.
0: Now, why does Jesus say here that the kingdom is at hand? Because I think you said there's a temporal and a spatial aspect to this.
1: Yeah, I think the, kind of in the NIV, it says the kingdom is here, uh, and I think the... But the way that it can be referred, kind of understood is the word can be here or can be um, kind of here as in it's here in a time sense, but here as in a kind of right here in front of you in a, in a kind of a location maybe kind of sense.
0: Yeah, so Jesus is saying, I'm the kingdom.
1: I think so. I think that's what what Jesus is Mm. saying here. It's here both in time, Mm. but also he's pointing to himself. He's got fingers kind of pointing to himself and saying, the kingdom is here on me. You know, kind of I am the kingdom.
0: Yeah, wow, that's quite something, isn't it? So what does Jesus say people have to do then to enter God's kingdom here? Well, it's quite
1: easy. Repent and believe in the gospel. We, we don't know what that means just yet. We, we, we are going to get there, uh, kind of through the book of Mark. Uh, but that I think the idea of repent is that understanding that you are in rebellion to the real king, that you have set yourself up. At, that's the story of the Bible, that we've set ourselves up as kings. But we need to repent of that. We need to see that we are part of the rebellion, which is against the rightful rule of God. And do what? Believe in the gospel, the gospel that God actually wants us back. He doesn't want to destroy us.
0: He wants us back. Yeah, and in, in, in one sense, I suppose, repentance involves turning from one kingdom and accepting another.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's kind of waking up to your own kind of silliness and sin uh, and selfishness and saying, hey, wait, I've been sold a lie here that this will not lead to what it promises I need to go back to the real King.
0: Mm. Now, how and in what senses is the kingdom of God being built today on the earth as we sit here in Palmerston North, New Zealand?
1: Well, I I think it's through the church and God's God's people. And when I say say the church, I don't mean necessarily buildings or even necessarily individual congregations. But it's God's people across the world that God is working through by the Spirit uh, in His people uh, as. God continues to spread this message and, and as people live it out.
0: And so we uh, carry on with verses 16 to 20, and we meet four men, don't we? Was there any significance to the number four, Rito? I don't know. Is there? Well, I think there may be, because you think back, God is always using, uh, there's all the references to the four corners of the house being oh, yeah. the foundation. So, And then you've got Daniel in the new restoration era with the four Daniel and his three friends. Shadrach, um, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Four corners of the earth. Four, uh, four is an image of completeness and authority and power in, in, in Scripture. But who are Simon and Andrew? Can we we meet now the the four corners of Jesus' New Kingdom? Simon and Andrew and James and John. Who are who are they? So
1: Simon and Andrew. Simon is, is uh, his name gets changed to Peter. Some, sometimes people call him Simon Peter, um, but yeah, they're just. Fishermen, all of them, aren't they? You, you kind of James and John. It's probably um, James becomes the the kind of the leader of the church in Jerusalem. John is the is probably his younger brother.
0: And that's the John who wrote the Gospel in Revelation, probably. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Mm, mm. Is there uh, why? Are they, why are the first disciples fishermen, Rito? Is there any significance to that? I don't know.
1: <laughs> I, I'm not. I'm not one hundred percent sure. I just. You know, maybe it's because they're kind of lowly, kind of just you know working
0: class kind of guys. Is there any connection between the fact that the Old Testament speaks of the sea as representing the Gentiles, and the fact that Jesus' first disciples are fishermen, and that they become fishers of men, yeah, fishers pos- of Gentiles, the nations? Yeah, probably. It's kind of it's mm. quite possible, isn't it? Mm. I'm, I think I suspect that's something. You, you like You sound a, convinced of that. No, I think it's <laughs> I, th- I think it's uh, sound enough. Uh, I'm, I'm happy to accept that. Yeah. In what sense is Mark picking up on the imagery from the end of Ezekiel, thinking of fishing images and the temple and the water flowing out? Yeah, you've all got all
1: that. different stuff in mm, there, don't you, mm, about that? Mm,
0: yeah, mm. it's quite interesting. It is interesting, yeah. So in what sense will the disciples then become fishers of men? Well, it's not, you know, kind of... I think Jesus is playing on the language of mm.
1: fishermen, you know, kind of, and then and then kind of picking up on that. Uh, and it's not that they're going to kind of go and hook them or anything like that, but they're going out to... to, to um, kind of, convince people that this is the kingdom, that this has come, and that people are going to come in. You kind of, you know, what what a, what do fishermen do? They they gather, and I think that's the idea here. So mm. it's about gathering people.
0: Well, you mentioned in your sermon the other day that the Old Testament uses a lot of fishing imagery to talk about God's judgment. So is that another strand of? Old Testament thought was being picked up here. Yeah, but it's
1: not negative here. Where in the Old Testament's quite negative. It is. Yes. Um, that that that's what God is doing. He's kind of, uh, kind of, casting the net and, and bringing it bringing it in for judgment, uh, particularly around interestingly around Babylon and, and the exile about what God did there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but here you've got the opposite. You, you've it's a positive kind of sense that people have been gathered in to relationship with the Father. Rather than kind of a negative judgment. Mm.
0: We read on. We read on to the twenty one to verse twenty eight. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there there was immediately again, you see there, and then immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere, throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Now, Uh, Again, we should draw attention to this word that opens immediately. In our translations, Mark uses this word immediately a lot, doesn't he?
1: Yeah, it just keeps popping up. And I think the idea is that he's trying to... Create a sense of speed and haste of what's going on. That this kingdom is coming quickly, uh, and that all of these things are happening. You know, kind of one thing after after the other. Time tends to slow down though in the book, and when we get to the the kind of right to the end, it's very very slow. It's kind of minute by minute. Where at this point it's just kind of one thing after the other. But by the time we get to kind of Jesus' trial and um, kind of his his death what happens is it really slows down.
0: Oh, okay, I hadn't, I hadn't thought about that. So how does Mark present then Jesus then as a man of action and indeed as a king here?
1: What, what do we have? We have the king coming uh, and where does he go? He goes to the people, he goes to the synagogue uh, and he's teaching there. But the, the big thing that we have see, we see here is that he's coming against the powers of this world. And here uh, the big power that, that kind of sits over the world is Satan. Uh, kind of, and that he has come to kind of conquer Satan first and foremostly, uh, so that we can be released from our slavery to him uh, and released from our sin.
0: Why does Jesus' ministry begin in a synagogue?
1: Well, that was where the that's where the people were. That's where they met, and that's the the place where people gather. But particularly, it's the Jewish kind of teaching house, you know, kind of where people gather together. Uh, and Jesus has come first and foremostly for the Jewish people. That's why they get, and that, that's where he goes to teach there.
0: What's the significance of the fact that the evil spirit is in the synagogue? Yeah, I've never... You, you would have expected the evil spirit to be outside the synagogue. Yeah,
1: when I read that, I, thought, I just think that's really odd. You know, kind of, I don't know. I don't know about that. But, you know, 23, and immediately there was... There was Uh, in their synagogue, a man with an unclean spirit. It's just kind of like whether he is already a part of a synagogue or whether... They, this the man knows who Jesus is and comes to sieges it's unclear but
0: or well, he's one of these folk that come into church just to disrupt well, possibly <laughs> well so we've got to deal with this all this business of demon possession because it seems quite strange to our modern world what do the gospel writers believe about spirit possession and are they actually using that term to describe illnesses that we would it's like epilepsy, for example, that we would have medical descriptions for understanding of?
1: I don't think so. Um, it's interesting that Luke doesn't have... I don't think Luke has any evil spirits uh, in his description. I might be wrong on that, but that's my understanding, is that Luke Luke doesn't really talk about uh, kind of evil spirits where all of the other gospel writers do. Uh, but for Mark in particular, it's very, very important that... Um, There's kind of this kind of overarching kind of oppression of people, um, and in particular, and individuals as well. But what what's not important is the is Satan's power. It's actually the opposite. It's Jesus' authority over that power.
0: Mm -hmm. Yes, because Jesus poses absolutely no problem for him at all, does it? Yeah. Why does Mark refer to spirit in the singular, but the spirit itself uses the plural? That's always puzzled me too in this verse. Yeah, I don't know.
1: it's just there, isn't it? It's just mm. kind of one of those things. Like, yeah, that's that's a bit odd, isn't it? I don't know.
0: Mm. So, what is Jesus' kingdom going to do to evil and evil powers? Then,
1: quite clearly. Well, what does he do? He just he rebukes it. Says, Be silent, come out!" And the uncomplete, you know, the unclean spirit convulses, crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. It's just kind of, it's with a word. I think this is the really important thing that Jesus, with a word, he does. There's it. no kind of you know fantastic language. There's no kind of uh, spells or incantations or anything like that. He just says it with a word, which what we see in Genesis one is isn't it, that God creates with Ah, a word. yes, yes, of course. So I think there's a, a small kind of replay there of what's going on. Yes, uh, but I th- I think it's just it's interesting that he doesn't kind of invoke any anything special. He just says it and it happens. Mm. It shows his power, doesn't it?
0: it? It does absolutely. And he is Lord of creation. He is God, and that's where the gospel is leading us to the conclusion. It's like the early chapters of Mark set this. It's like a mystery story uh, where Mark is saying, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Let me give you these clues. They're like little clues. He has control of creation. He has control over evil. He has control over spiritual powers and authority. So who do you think he is?
1: It's interesting that he he reveals the mystery right at verse Mm,
0: 1
1: of who Jesus is. He's the son of God. And then works backwards. Yeah, exactly. Then then he goes and says, Hey, but let me show you—you know, kind of. Let's work back to to that point again, and that's where we get to right at the end of the book.
0: Yeah, it's absolutely brilliant stuff. Now, we're going to look now at verses twenty-nine to thirty-four, and immediately there again, we're off again. Immediately, he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now, Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever. So now we've got sickness. We've had evil. Now we've got sickness. And immediately they told him about her, and he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak, because they knew him. Now, how do we encounter the problem of sickness in this passage, read
1: well, again, what, what have you got? You've got this oppression on people. That sickness uh, is just, a, you know, and ultimately what it is, it's the, um, I need to be careful how, how we kind of phrase this, but it's the fruit of sin. Now, I don't mean that in the sense of that sin equals that sickness, but it's just, the, it's you know, sin in the world, we're all all a part of that, and so we all kind of experience suffering, we all experience suffering, uh, uh, Kind of sickness because we are all sinners And so there's that kind of sense That there's, there's this oppression on humanity Of sickness because we are out of relationship with God
0: mm. So how does Mark show us That Jesus has power over sickness here? What does Jesus do?
1: I think it's interesting there in verse 31 That he takes Simon's mother-in-law by the hand You know, It's not something you would do to someone who's sick Is it? Because it
0: uh, is she unclean in the Jewish law? I'm not sure Possibly not yeah, I don't know, I don't know.
1: I'm not that um, kind of versed on, on, sure. on every no. <laughs> on every single no. kind of um, sickness in, in in the Jewish law, but but you wouldn't do that, you know. You kind of but what does he do? He treats her like a human, which is quite interesting. He takes her, he restores her, and the fever leaves her, and she begin, begins to to kind of do her work. But the idea there that Jesus. Even just the, the touch of his hand has power. This is kind of this amazing kind of thing going on. Mm. Why
0: well, is it important for Mark then to show us that Jesus has power over sickness and evil?
1: Well, he's proving his point that Jesus is the Son of God. And Jesus is not trying to reveal himself just yet. It seems to be kind of a little bit hidden, um, but... It goes to the if we go back to verse fifteen, where the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is hand, this is the kingdom coming into place. Jesus has come to restore relationships with the Father. And so because he's done that, he because he is doing that, he must have power over the evil spirits, he must have power over, over sickness, all fruits. Being out of relationship with the
0: father, Mm. and so he's restoring creation, really, isn't he? Yeah, exactly. How does Jesus' ministry explode in these verses?
1: Well, this is the first day of Jesus' ministry, right? Yeah, kind of (laughs) some first day. Yeah, I know. And look at there in thirty-two, that evening at sundown, they brought him all who were sick and oppressed, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. It's like, wow, that's now that's how you do ministry, (laughs) (laughs) right? If you want to build your church, this is how you do it. Uh, But it's kind of it just it just gets out of hand basically. Jesus hasn't even really had the opportunity to preach much uh, but because of his healing people are so worn down by sickness they're so worn down by sin mm. uh, that they just want to come and, and have restoration.
0: Another interesting little detail there in verse 34 Ian what, why does Jesus not allow the demons to speak?
1: I think I think that's really interesting. You've got this sense uh, as you read the story that the author knows who Jesus is, The reader has kind of been given a little bit of a a taste of who that is as they're working it out. But we're outside of the story. You have God the Father at the baptism. He knows who Jesus is. He's sitting outside the story. But you've got some of these people inside the story, these demons, and they're not allowed to say who Jesus is. They're not allowed to let on about it. So they're stopped from speaking. Uh, so that the people within this story, I think, so the people within this story can work it out for themselves.
0: Yeah, there seems to be a th- well, we'll come on and read verses thirty five to thirty eight because there seems to be a theme uh, of the hiddenness of God uh, a little bit in this in this in this um, gospel. I don't know. But listen to what Mark writes next, thirty five to thirty eight, and rising very early in the morning while it was still dark. He departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him... So he's a little bit hidden from them, isn't he? They've got to hunt for him. They found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. So presumably there are more demons in the synagogues right throughout Galilee, which is interesting too. But what do these verses uh, tell us about the kingdom at the end there? Well, it's coming is basically the the, the key kind of thing.
1: I think it's interesting that Jesus says in, the, in, in 38, um, let us go to the next sentence, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. Ah, yes. Uh, I don't think it's necessarily the preaching. That, uh, well, we need to probably discuss about what he means, but I came out. But the um, the the preaching is not necessarily the thing. I think it's that the kingdom, the, the, the spreading of the kingdom, not only in this village, but we need to go elsewhere to spread the kingdom as well because it's coming.
0: So, what is the significance of the words? That is why I came out. Then? I think.
1: I think it's when you read other versions that is why I've come. You know, kind of. I think that probably makes a little bit more sense. That I have come uh, to spread the kingdom, to preach it, to to kind of show it.
0: Uh, We're just about out of time, but but just before we close, Ian, uh, I want to come back to this idea of the Gospels, the different Gospels, and the fact that we've seen that Mark seems to present Jesus as a new David, a royal Messiah, a man of action, certainly, who immediately goes here and immediately goes there. But how do each of the Gospels, do you think, reflect different aspects of Jesus' ministry and character?
1: Yeah, you've definitely got that here in Mark, that Jesus uh, is the... Um, kind of the king coming or the, the prince coming I think that's even more so in Luke uh, which is quite interesting that when you read the language of Luke it's very much uh, like 1 Samuel that that the language used uh, is very much about the king coming but you also have other aspects there uh, in Luke where you've got a lot, a lot of outsiders uh, being, uh, being brought into the kingdom particularly Gentiles.
0: Now, oh, that's significant for Luke because of the whole connection with Luke and Acts and the evangelism. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Luke seems to be particularly interested in mission, doesn't he?
1: Well, in Luke, there's this interesting kind of story arc that happens. It goes from Jerusalem, starts in Jerusalem, ends in Jerusalem, yeah. and yeah. then Acts begins in Jerusalem where it goes to the end of the world. And what did Jesus yeah. say? Yeah. The gospel will... Begin the mission will begin in Jerusalem and then it will end in the ends of the world. But uh, I think in Matthew it seems to be much more written towards a a kind of Jewish kind of mindset, and you've got the rather than the kingdom of God being talked about, the the kingdom of heaven uh, being explained there, and it's just kind of a different thing. But in in John's gospel, it seems to be a bit more Gnostic, being uh, kind of maybe addressing some of the the heresies that have come into the church early on. Uh, it's very different to the other gospels, uh, but uh, particularly, and uh, it's kind of shaped around the miracles, the, the kind of the seven signs. Yes, he's a
0: he's a great man for the fulfilment of the Old Testament and all the sevens, the seven I am sayings, and the seven signs, and everything else. Why? Why do you think we, Why do you think we have four gospels? Is there any significance to the four? Thinking well, the, back to what we were talking about earlier.
1: Yeah, well, the early church kind of said the. Just as it's four winds or four corners of the earth, there must be four Gospels. I don't know if that was a, a good argument or <laughs> not, but that was the argument that they used. Well, they
0: also used the argument there were four cherubim faces. Okay, yep, yep. And that fascinates me. So each of the Gospels represents a face of the cherubim. And if you're interested in this and want to pursue it, there's a fantastic book by Peter Lighthart called The Four mm. uh, on, on the Gospels, and he goes into the four cherubim faces and how they relate to the four Gospels. So what's Mark? Uh, Mark is 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 the is the, um, is the lion, the okay. king, because yep. it's a lion is associated with the lion of Judah and is the king. And I didn't make a note before I came down. I should have of, of how he breaks the four down. But it's very. I find it convincing. Um, so John is the man because he's the fullest. I um, John was the eagle, wasn't he? No, no. He, Lightheart reckons, as a, if I remember rightly, Lightheart reckons okay. he's the man because it's the fullest understanding of Jesus as mm. the new Adam, the new the new humanity. Uh, Luke is the eagle because it's tied in with the idea of mission, and Lightheart, I think, from memory or Jordan, one of the either, uh, brings the history of the the old Old Testament into the four Gospels. So uh, the eagle matches the restoration period with Daniel and Esther where the Jews are going out and settling into these Gentile nations Mm. and they're being converted and the Jews are being asked to help run them. So that's tied up with the idea of the eagle being the eagle, the bird that flies out. So you had that with Luke and Acts. Luke and Acts as the church goes out. And I think that's right. And Matthew is the ox, he reckons, I think, from memory because... Matthewus and that's why Matthew is so concerned with the law. Yeah. Yeah. And and with the old whole covenant system. Mm, yeah. And it's tied with a sacrificial system. And Mark is the line because he's very much presents Jesus as the royal Messiah, yeah. as the King, and I think that makes sense. But hey, it's just interesting. Yeah, it is interesting, isn't it? Yeah, and, and you've got to be careful not to kind of oh no yeah no. kind of run away on these oh, no, things. No, no, and no, I think there no,
1: are interesting no, things to interest to, to kind of um, kind of think about mm. if they add value to who we understand who Jesus is, and that's the, that's the key thing. They're not yeah. distraction, but they add value. Yeah,
0: and I, I think I think uh, Lightheart's book is written in a way that it certainly does add value and makes you just think, wow, you know, this is amazing that God's Spirit has worked in this way, and even in little details like that, yeah. uh, it, the whole universe, the whole created order, it matches up. Yeah. Okay, well, that's us done for the second uh, podcast on Mark. Once again, the Reverend Ian Reed Rido of King's Grace Presbyterian Church, Palmerston North, New Zealand. Thank you so much for your time. We really hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story podcast. If you want to help us make more
1: great episodes like this one, you can head over to our Patreon page and become a God's Story Podcast supporter. You'll receive our undying gratitude, plus a few bonus goodies for your ongoing support. Just visit patreon.com slash godstorypodcast. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash godstorypodcast. As always, you can get in touch with us via our website, godstorypodcast.com.